From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. And I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to have Alyssa Mastermonico joining us. A UW alum, Alyssa has crafted an impressive resume over her career. She's worked in the Obama administration as Deputy Chief of Staff, is a New York Times bestselling author, was Chief Operating Officer at Vice Media, among a host of other titles. With Alyssa, we'll be discussing her professional involvements, the state of the country, and what the rest of the election cycle may look like. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alyssa. Oh, you guys, thanks for having me. Go Badgers. So Alyssa, we want to start with where you were when you were where we are now. You were feeling the burn years before many of today's college students were. One of your first jobs was working as an intern for then Congressman Bernie Sanders. And you've said this experience inspired you to work in government. Could you describe what it was about that job that fed your interest in politics? Sure. You know, when Bernie decided to run for president the first time, actually, he called me up to talk because I had done a presidential campaign twice already at that point. And I went back to my childhood bedroom and found the trunk that I took to college that had my Bernie Sanders 94 and 96 stickers. So I literally was feeling the burn 25 years before anybody else. (laughs) Um, So what happened was I was lucky enough, you know, I wrote a letter application to be an intern when I was still in school in Vermont in 1995 and I got accepted and I really just did it to kind of see what it was about. And I, at the time I was a French major with a minor in Japanese and Bernie Sanders and his entire team and his philosophy, it was much less, like I always tell people, it was much less about politics and much more about public service and government that sort of Bernie inspired me to, because that's kind of everything that he was, has been about is helping people. And so he, and I'm sure you can tell just by his campaign style, he does not infantilize, he does not talk down. And so when I was an intern, he did not treat me like a 20 year old, you know, sort of young person who was there to clip newspaper clippings. Um, So I actually got the opportunity to drive him around and pick him up at the airport and drive him to different events. And we would have these great conversations. And the thing that he always wanted to know about was not like, you know, originally the little nerd in me was like memorizing the New York Times. And he's like, no, what does it say in the Rutland Herald? What does the Burlington Free Press say? Like what's happening in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont? And so the amazing thing and what completely converted me was that part of my job was answering the phones. And this is all before the internet and all this kind of stuff. And so if constituents needed to submit a complaint or an issue, they'd call you up. And so I would talk to all these people. And the difference is back then, I could hear the anxiety, I could hear the frustration, I could hear the fear. And so I would track the paperwork and the casework as it went through. And to me, it was like mind blowing how many people would call up with a problem on a Monday that had been solved by Friday or the following week. And so to me, 
you know, whether it was social security issues or immigration status, um, anything like that, it was just to, to me a really incredible thing to see someone who was one so committed to his constituents and to problem solving and someone who was just so totally about equality. And um, so anyway, that was it. I was hooked after that. I actually changed my major and you guys are probably too young to know who this person is, but one of Bernie's best friends was a man named Ed Garvey. Ed Garvey was one of the most progressive uh, labor attorneys in America, and he was from Madison, Wisconsin. And so one day when Bernie, and this is just an example to everybody about how like you never know where opportunity will present itself. So I was answering the phones and a 608 area code came up and I was like, oh, I'm going to talk to this person. And so uh, it was Ed Garvey. He was waiting to speak with Bernie. And I said, you know, Bernie's just wrapping up a call, but I noticed that your area code is 608. And so anyway, he struck up a conversation with me. And by the time I got to Madison that August, uh, I actually worked for Ed Garvey, who ran for governor in Wisconsin, I think once or twice. He just he passed away not that long ago. I worked for him and his group, the Friends of Public Education, for two full years. And when I got arrested in Madison for having a fake ID, he was my lawyer. <laughs> so an opportunity and a good out sometimes. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that anecdote. Kind of now turning to your book, your New York Times bestselling book, uh, you talk a lot about leadership and what makes a good leader. What are some lessons or advice that you have for students or recent grads who want to become better leaders? Sure. You know, I think that one of the things I learned probably right out of college is that, you know, I had my very specific social group and I took very specific classes, of course, which sort of surround you by like-minded people. And so when I actually graduated, I couldn't find a job uh, any place I really wanted to work. And I ended up being a paralegal in the World Trade Center in the Twin Towers. And there I met people who were very competitive, very ambitious. And like, I would never describe myself as that kind of person. And in that, I sort of like modeled my behavior after them because I'm like, well, they went, you know, they want to be successful. If I want to be successful, I should be like them. And it was like a catastrophically bad idea. To me, that's not how I actually, that was not my formula for being successful. I think that some people view leadership as just a consolidation of power. And that's not what it is at all, in my opinion. Um, to me, being a good leader is about listening to people. And I think so much of what we're seeing right now uh, in the protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd is about people wanting their leaders to listen. And I think that you see communities are um, sort of supporting, the, the communities that are the most supportive are the ones where the leadership, where the police force is listening to the protesters. And so to me, I think that anytime I have been successful and, and to me being a leader, wasn't about being the titular head of a group. It was about being the person who was trying to listen to everybody's ideas and bring them together. And so as a leader, I have always seen myself as a team member um, who is maybe the one responsible for tying everything up and delivering it as it should be. But for me, it's always been about listening. It's how you get the best product uh, with diverse voices. And if it's just about power, then you're really not listening to anyone. And the product is just a reflection of what you think, which isn't good. I love that. Um, I think that's such a great way to think about leadership and especially in this time more than ever. So we're going to shift over to the work that you've done, especially in the campaign world. So what are some strategies you suggest for making it in a campaign and how did you make your way up the ladder? My first campaign was in 2002, Rick Boucher, Virginia's Fighting Ninth. Uh, he was a blue dog who unfortunately got kicked out of Congress because he voted for the Affordable Care Act. 
but that was different because I was in the congressional office and I was the press secretary and I essentially just did the press for the campaign and the congressional office. So I wasn't, I was only there for a little bit. My real fulsome first immersive experience in campaign was John Kerry. And, you know, for me, the experiences, I was pretty young in John Kerry land. And the thing that I found is when you are young, no matter how smart you are, you still have a lot to learn. And for me, I think that again, you know, always being in listening mode, always trying to learn from people around me, especially in the very beginning, I think that you have to understand the amount of stress that people at the very top of the campaign are in and under. And for me, I found that who is ever going to trust me with something more interesting or a greater level of responsibility if I can't do the easy shit right? And so whether it was being an intern for Bernie Sanders, if you couldn't answer the phone with respect, if you couldn't sort and collate things that people needed you to do, then why were they ever going to give you the chance to write those things you were collating or to go out and do meetings with constituents if you can't even address them properly on the phone? And so I think a lot of that is translatable to a campaign. You know, if you are starting as the most junior organizer, well, how do you get to that next level? Well, you get people to talk to you you know, and how do you get people to talk to you? You listen to what they're saying. You don't talk at them. You listen to them. And so for me, literally so much of what can be, what makes someone successful is their ability to like intake information, to listen and then do something with it. And so being successful, I think is like truly, I mean, as, as someone who also oversaw the White House internship program, I can tell you the kids who would come in uh, to talk to me and try to express why they should be an intern, who basically told me that they were somehow smarter than me and they should be doing substantive policy work. When during the government shutdown, I was personally responsible for emptying garbage cans and that's fine. Um, you know, so I think that there's a certain humility that's compelling, you know, to really show people that you're there, you're there for the right reason, you're there for the candidate, you're there because you believe and not because you're there just to get to the next step, I think is really important. And I think that also, especially in the time of like, 24 seven news and social media, there is no reason to not know everything that you can know. And so for me, I would say to anyone listening who's interested in getting into politics, you know, it's less about knowing what every pundit is saying on Twitter about whatever you're working on and really doing things like reading the local newspapers, you know, follow local, um, local leaders and see what they're saying um, so that you are very immersed in the community and not just sort of like phoning it in to get to your next step. Because for me, you know, it's a wild thing, but uh, the classes that I took in Madison to this day still follow me. There are still things that I bring up from them and they were because like I just spent so much time, like when I talk to people at the Wisconsin Dems, when I'm trying to help people understand um, what it means to live in a battleground state, like what people are about. And like, I wouldn't know that if I hadn't immersed myself uh, in like the state of Wisconsin when I was there. And so I would say, just try to be as smart as you can about the place where you are. You mentioned in there how eventually uh, this campaign work led to your job in the Obama administration. Did you ever realize how public facing your job would be in the administration? Like, in no. interviews and books, you talk about how uh, administration members are representatives of America on foreign trips. They are uh, working for the American people. Like, what was challenging and rewarding about being that public 
Sure. I mean, you know, the thing also too about, um, and I'm sure anyone who saw Barack Obama's remarks the other day that he made about the unrest and the protesting around the murder of George Floyd, he is just someone who, like you can see when he gave his remarks, it all goes back to organizing. It all goes back to people. And so for us, you know, in the Senate office, when we, I'm sure many people listening know John Favreau, uh, I have known John Favreau and been his sister from another mister since the day after he was valedictorian of Holy Cross College. We both, and, and Tommy Vitor, who I'm sure people who are listening know, the three of us have been together since the day Barack Obama was inaugurated in the U.S. Senate. And he had just these guiding principles. It was never about us. It was always about the people. We came there every day to serve you know, the people of Illinois and then ultimately rep represent the people of the United States. And so as we sort of plotted through the Senate office, you know, one of my greatest memories, it's, it's a tragic memory, but it's a great memory, was during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, it happened during the Senate summer recess, the very end of August. Barack Obama sees what's happening. He was in Russia. He was making his way home through the United Kingdom. I get one phone call from him that's like, what are we doing? We have to help. How are we helping? And he came right back to Washington and we found ways to help. And he, again, so immersed himself in the local news and seeing what people needed that when we were doing a conference call with uh, American Express because they were giving money, Walgreens because they were giving supplies, UPS because they were donating planes. He demanded I let him get on the phone because he wanted to make sure that all of the supplies we're sending were things that people really needed. And the one thing he was most concerned about was making sure that women uh, were getting feminine hygiene products, which he said out loud on the call. And um, I was like, sir, like we've got it covered. But that person and that ethos followed us. And so when we actually got to the White House after we won, you know, one of his biggest things on the week before the election was, you know, we had been joking, completely joking about doing fireworks over Lake Michigan. And he's like, that is not who we are. There will be no fireworks. And we're like, okay, okay, like we get it, we get it. Like there wasn't even like a real celebration because there was so much work to do. So by the time we got back to Washington, like November, December of 08, Vanity Fair and Annie Leibovitz was doing a photo shoot and we were going to be in Vanity Fair. We were all being photographed for New York Magazine. And we were like, why? Like, why does anyone care about us? <laughs> this is crazy. And uh, I know a couple of us wish that we had taken those pictures a little more seriously because they do live on the internet forever and they were not great. But, you know, I think that it did not hit us to your point until we had been there for a while and until these random mean conservative women wrote blogs about how I didn't dress properly in the West Wing. And, you know, for me, it's something that not only were we representing the people of the United States, we were representing the first African-American president. And I think that for all of us, we never wanted to be that person that brought any embarrassment or shame. And so, you know, but to your point about being like international diplomats, you know, um, my greatest memory was when we went to Myanmar, we went to Burma. And we landed and the Secret Service said that we were going to have to drive very slowly because so many people, hundreds of thousands of people had turned out to wave to him on the street. And the thing that, you know, President Obama would say is like, never underestimate representation. These people see someone when we would go to Africa and people would just come out. Like when we landed in Ghana, our first trip to Africa, 
there were billboards, there were signs, there was music. People were playing when we were, uh, Ben Rhodes, another name, uh, Ben and I were together in Ghana and we could not believe that in the cabs, we could hear the cabs, in the cabs you could hear the local radio stations were playing famous speeches Obama had given. I think the one Ben and I heard was actually the 2004 convention speech. For us, I think that we always, always just wanted to not uh, do harm, you know, to not ever do anything that would bring embarrassment or because we were young. You know, when I got to the White House, I was 33. So I think that that is, uh, it was hard for us and it was an adjustment for us. I think that to have just been very private people and then have people, especially in Washington, D.C., which can be such a grueling, awful place, um, to suddenly have people care about like where you were eating dinner or um, what you were wearing uh, was just so anathema to sort of who we were. But we took it very seriously and most seriously, of course, you know, this is a lesson for everybody. But our motto, uh, my department's motto, and I think ultimately we all, all of us from, you know, Dan Pfeiffer to Valerie Jarrett, we would all agree that if you had to sum up how Barack Obama felt about going places, it was always leave it better than you found it. Bring it hope, bring it inspiration. If you are doing events there, you know, pay your bills, uh, unlike our current resident of the White House who has left municipalities with thousands of dollars of debt. But I think that that is ultimately just, if you could boil it down into one thing, just leave it better than you found it. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, turning to your work post-White House, you work with Vice News and Crooked Media. I know some of the guys that you mentioned from the pod have also talked about the difficulty of that transition from going to having national security clearance and always being in the know, sort of being yeah. in the dark again. What was that transition like for you and how did your approach toward work change? So for me, there was a real thing, especially if you look at John Favreau, Tommy Rhodes, especially Tommy and John, because we started in 2005, January of 05 together in the Senate office. And it was always just nonstop. Every day, something was happening. And what you realize is that from January 2005 until May of 2014, I was running on adrenaline every single day. And there is a, again, like I always think we were pretty centered. We never thought that we were the subject, you know, that we were the most important person. But there is something when one of my jobs was if something wild happened overnight, the situation room would call me. I would decide whether the situation room then called the chief of staff or went directly to the president. And most times, if the sit room is calling you at two in the morning, they're going to need to go directly to the president after that. And then it would be my job to call the chief and then other senior staff members who were relevant to whatever was happening. I had a junior one bedroom on M and 13th Street Northwest in Washington. I had a secure computer and two phones, a red phone and a yellow phone. That is real. And those phones would ring and they had a very scary ring. It was an entire computer server. And so it made my bedroom really hot. I mean, it was just like, it's just, I, I think back on it and I, just, I think it's crazy. So you go from being that vital to something, right? And then you leave and you're like not vital at all. And it is also, I do not think I would be as triggered if say Hillary Clinton were president as I am now but there is such a protocol and it is thorough and it is for a reason. And there are reasons that every administration, especially let's just say post 9-11, because a lot of things changed after 9-11, 
but there were reasons that the Bush folks did what they did. There's a reason we continued those processes. There is a reason that we did binders explaining to the incoming administration why those things should be done. It is the peaceful transition of power. It is something that the United States, it's, it's uniquely American in so many ways, hopefully still next November. But for us, I, I mean, it's hard. It's hard because I know how things should function and I see how they're not functioning. And I know why that matters to America, not just Democrats or Republicans, but why what we did and how we did it really matters. So for me, it's, it's hard to not have rage and be angry every single day. I try to use my voice to amplify the things that are important and not just be screaming about everything. But the reason that I actually chose to go to Vice Media after the White House is because, and this is like an interesting thing and, and worth thinking about for yourself as you think about your career. The campaign was very communal. It was very exciting. It was very energetic. The White House, kind of the same. And so when I left the White House and all of these corporations come after you and they want to pay you just so that they can say that the deputy chief, you know, from the White House is working for them. I went to Vice because the actual environment felt familiar to me. The energy, youth, um, the thing that was hard was sort of the lack of hierarchy, which I understood but to me was complicated in a decision-making environment. And also for media in a place where you believe in my core that there are two sides to every story, I just fundamentally don't believe that in certain cases now. I do think there is truth and there is lying. And so, you know, that was a little bit hard, but like a genuinely like good experience. I actually, one of the uh, young people I became quite close with, I saw that she was out protesting and I was like, don't forget to text me if you need bail you know, those relationships endure. I just have one quick follow-up before you move on. You talked about like that status of being vital in the White House. I can't put myself in your shoes, but I like tried to imagine like going home after that or like visiting um, like your hometown or your parents. Very hard. Yeah. What's that mm -hmm. like? Like you're sitting there at dinner. Like, do you talk about those things? Can they sense it on so, you? So it's actually funny. And it's good that my parents don't listen to podcasts. They probably wouldn't appreciate the story. Um, but one Christmas, you know, the, the interesting thing too, is that for, I think it was three or four Christmases, I was a uh, deputy chief and as deputy chief, you're part of the continuity of government and you're the acting chief of staff when the chief of staff is not there. And so the president had just landed in Hawaii and my parents, I had just gotten home. I was only going to be home for two days. And we were in the middle of like finishing decorating the tree or something. And my phone rang. And my dad was like, come on, you know, like, can't we just do for an hour? And I was like, no, it's the sit room. And he was like, come on. And I showed him, I'm like, no, it's the situation room calling me right now. <laughs> and I think, I think it was the underwear bomber. It was something real. It was something mm. real that was happening. And, you know, on the one hand, I come from a pretty small town in upstate New York. And so um, sometimes you'd go out and people would treat you a little bit differently. Like you were like a celebrity, which is so you'd be like, no, no, stop, stop. Like, no, that's not like, just be normal. Um, but then you realize something that made me appreciate it and react to it in a different way. And that was a story that someone who worked for me told me. And he had grown up in Harlem. He had seen unspeakable violence. He, uh, he had a pretty tough upbringing and uh, he came to work for me. And one day he asked me if he could go out and do a speaking engagement, which wasn't something we usually did in the White House if it wasn't like 
a request through the White House. And he explained to me that it was a group of young African-American men and that what is so important is that people do not need to meet the president. But if they meet someone who's in the, the space of the president, right, that, that it makes those people feel a certain way. And to me, and, and Greg said that, you know, they didn't, that the men that he was speaking with didn't meet to meet Barack Obama, but they met someone who grew up like them and was like them that worked for Barack Obama. And that that gave them a sense of pride and a sense of hope and aspiration. And so I tried to think of it that way. Now, when people see me and want to talk about my time in the White House or want to talk about Barack Obama, I try to, I don't talk about my place in history. I'm not like, well, then I was here and then I was there. And then I talked to this person and that person. I try to talk more about sort of the experiences that were shared that we had so people could feel like they were there and make it more about that than about me, which is what I thought they were doing. And that made me uncomfortable. But, but it's like, people just want to know. People want to know that the stories that they've heard are true. They want to believe that he and uh, First Lady Michelle Obama are as uh, rad as you think they are, and they are. That's all I have to say. And it has nothing to do with how they ever treated me, which was wonderful, but it's how they treated everybody else, especially people that they would meet for the first time, so. Absolutely, thank you for sharing all of that. So we're just gonna move over to some forward-looking questions. President Trump has stepped into and remains in unprecedented territory with his response to both the COVID-19 pandemic and also the protests. What's your take on his actions and do you foresee his actions or lack thereof having an impact on his re-election chances? We can all hope and pray. I mean, they should. The If you want to start back with the response to coronavirus, I mean, there is no timeline supported by video and actual statements from the president that doesn't demonstrate his utter lack of response uh, at the beginning of this crisis. And one of the biggest that, that I, I think that the media did not do a good enough job of explaining to people and why people should be so angry, I'm sure you guys remember discussion around the uh, Defense Production Act. The Defense Production Act should have been invoked in early March, before some cities even shut down, because they knew that the uh, arsenal, the whatever they call it, the, the national stockpile, uh, they knew that it didn't have masks, it didn't have PPEs, it didn't have, we didn't have enough ventilators to support any prediction, even the lowest end of the predictions of what would hit the United States. And so what should have happened is that you invoke the Defense Production Act, you pick certain companies, you tell them what they're going to make, and then you assure them uh, trained workers and orders so that when they get the equipment, so if you are Ford Motors and you're told to make ventilators, well, if you convert your factory to make ventilators, and by the time you're done with that, there are no orders for ventilators, you're out of luck. Like you are screwed, Ford would be screwed. And so the point of the Defense Production Act is that you would, the it is everything, the incoming and the outcoming is centralized through the Department of Defense. And companies are assured uh, product orders and people then, like all of us on this podcast today, know that, that our healthcare workers and frontline workers would be protected in the way they needed and that people when they got sick would be able to have access to ventilators. Um, he did not do this. And so what people need to understand is that when Governors Cuomo, Pritzker, Newsom, Whitmer all talked about how they were securing PPEs, 
they were essentially on eBay. And there was one pallet of, let's say there's one pallet of PPEs. New York would bid a million dollars. Illinois would bid $2 million. Michigan would bid $3 million. And those, those supplies would go to the highest bidder. Well, the money they were bidding with is taxpayer money. And so the fact that the government was not doing the job that it was supposed to be doing has cost not just lives, but millions of dollars in tax money to states that have been destroyed financially by the coronavirus. That is all on Donald Trump's head. And I will make it my mission to make sure that people understand how much in every way that decision-making or lack thereof cost us. States can't operate in debt. Like you can't go into debt if you're a state. Once you run out of money, you have to find it. Um, and that usually comes from places like schools, uh, supplemental programming, um, things that people need, especially now. So he's terrible. The protests, uh, and there's no, there's no word, there are no words. There are no words. When I saw the inane photo of the president, the attorney general, Jared and Ivanka, because why not? They're everywhere for no good reason leaving the White House and walking over to St. John's Church and gassing, tear, tear gassing protesters. I mean, when the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C., of the church is like, that was absurd and wrong. Like, you know it's absurd and wrong, especially when the president takes a Bible and holds it upside down so that he can take a terrible picture, which looks absurd. The militarization of the police departments has been a problem for a long time. Um, he sort of doubled down on that in the biggest way. And I just, again, hope that everybody listened to our beloved former commander-in-chief, POTUS44 Obama. Also, I always want an organizer as my president because what did he say when he spoke to everybody? It is within the power of the mayors and local elected officials to alter policing policies, to have uh, community review boards, to make chokeholds totally illegal. Um, and so I do feel some comfort because I know that there are mayors, uh, I think there are 19,000 municipalities, as uh, President Obama said yesterday, who can make this change and make it quickly. Um, it is heartening, it's more than heartening, it's heartening, it's inspiring, it's uh, to see that uh, Ferguson now has its first African-American mayor uh, as of two days ago. And so I think that, you know, Barack Obama has always said that America is stronger than one bad president. Um, I believe that. I, I do think that Donald Trump has done uh, irreparable damage to some of the progress that was made over the past 25 years. But I am hoping that the polls that show him down 12 points nationally to uh, Joe Biden are true. I tend to think polling is bullshit, but let's hope it's true. Um, and that, uh, you know, we get some change in November. Yeah, you segued perfectly into this. What are your thoughts now on uh, Joe Biden's candidacy, uh, especially as someone that knows him? I want to be honest with my Badgers. I, uh, I definitely was uh, supportive of candidates that had much more progressive policies in the primary. In the world right now, we talk about people who are doing the work, 
and that if you want to understand people and represent them, you have to do the work to understand them and include them in how you build your policy platform. I think that Elizabeth Warren is a tremendous example of that. And, um, and, and of course, Bernie. And so I was heartened after um, Super Tuesday um, and after uh, Bernie and Warren stepped down and it was uh, clear that Biden would be the nominee elect or, you know, a presumptive nominee. Uh, it, I was heartened to see that he was really taking seriously things that were important to a majority of the party um, and adopting some of the progressive policies that Bernie and uh, Warren had been working on for a long time. Bernie especially. I mean, I think that when you want to talk about authenticity, I mean, Bernie has been the policies, most of the policies he's talking about now, he's been talking about for 25, 30, 40 years. But I think that Biden has the ability to bring the party together, especially with a really strong uh, vice presidential selection. And it is incredibly hard to campaign from your basement. You know, I mean, it is, it is, I don't wish it on anybody, <laughs> um, especially when you have a president who so manipulates uh, the use of the abuse of the Oval Office and the platform that that gives you. Um, he is literally campaigning from his Twitter, from the White House, in the Rose Garden every day, uh, in, in obvious and gross ways. And so I think that Biden, uh, I think that uh, it is, of course, it was a great, right, smart thing for him to speak with the Floyd family. I think that going to the protests was, uh, was a good move. I think that getting the mayors together to talk about, Mayor Garcetti, Lance Bottoms, um, uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, I think getting those mayors together was really smart and helpful. And so I think he's doing the best that he can in the circumstances that he has right now. Thank you for your take on that. So you've seen many campaigns and administrations over the years. Do you have any message of inspiration or hope or unity for students as either they go back to school in August or are venturing out into the job market? So the job market is tough, for sure. I mean, as we speak today, another 1.87 million people uh, have filed for unemployment in the last week. And that's incredible. That's over 35 million people uh, in the past month who have filed for unemployment. So it is going to be hard. So I would tell you something that's not much different than I told myself or later learned to tell myself, which is that if you can find a job, any job, and you can pay your bills and you can pay your rent, uh, that is a success. You are successful. Success should not be measured in achieving your dream job in the first year out of college. It almost never happens. Anyone who tells you it does is lying. And so in so much as you can find reasonable metrics for success, I mean, for me personally, right now, I am 44 years old. I was deputy chief at the White House. I am completely unemployed. I have every job I had is ended. All of my contracts have been canceled. I have no clients. Uh, it's just me and my, uh, thank God for my bros at Pod Save America because I still have my podcast. Everyone is, uh, is suffering. And so in so much as you can just find small ways to be proud of yourself and feel fulfilled, I think that's important. And if you have time on your hands, volunteer in a way that, I mean, I'm going to say I've gotten 
pretty good at the Zoom. Uh, you guys are much better than I am, but you can be so helpful with making remote calls for candidates, um, supporting your local elected officials. Like, like sometimes people, especially in politics, measure their success by like, do you get to work for the senator, the state party, the national party, the president? Um, change is gonna happen with mayors and local electeds. I mean, if we wanna change something as important as policing policies, that's where it starts. And so if you want to channel your energy anywhere, I would say to chat to channel it there. And in terms of this president and the state of affairs, I think that what we see is that most national leaders are listening and that's important. And we need to keep speaking up so that they keep listening. And I think that it is trite to say that all of these problems would be solved by voting. That's a lie, but they're not gonna get better if people don't vote. So everybody needs to be registered for vote. There's one resource I cannot put forward enough. It is votesaveamerica.com. You can go there, find out if you're registered to vote, find out what policy uh, ballot initiatives are up this year and learn everything you need to learn about candidates you may not have heard of and for positions you didn't even know were up for election. So that is what I would say. And if we look at the success we had in 2018, People want change. They know they made a mistake with Donald Trump. Um, he continues to be as divisive as possible. I mean, it is absurd if you think about it that there were people carrying semi automatic weapons in the Michigan State Capitol protesting stay at home orders, um, and they were treated respectfully by police. And then we have peaceful protesters who are singing that were being tear gassed. Like, there is a lot left to do here, but um, do not lose hope. Uh, because if you lose hope, then it's despair. And if you're in despair, then you're stuck. We are four white people talking about this today. And if there's one thing I can say to people who look like us, that want to be allies, it is to use your platform and your voice to amplify the voices of the people who need it. Don't make it about you. Don't, it's, it is the worst thing. I have seen so many people I know do it. And, you know, I have a, a decent platform and I use it as much as I can to support the voices of the people who I think need to be heard much more than I do. And so that's a lesson that we should not forget going into November. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, that's a lovely message. I hear you on um, sending the people who are most affected by these issues and being grateful for any job that you're able to get. Um, so thank you. On a lighter note, um, we have one last question. So we know that you're a deadhead and we wanted to know which is your favorite Grateful Dead live album? Cornell's 77. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I know we all really appreciate it. Well, guys, let me tell you, let me leave you with my quote, my favorite dead quote that I think about always uh, when I think about Donald Trump. And for some reason, it makes me laugh. It's from the greatest story ever told. And it says, you can't close the door when the walls caved in. So the walls are caving in on him. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions regarding the 2020 elections, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom, Election 2020.